Reading from Daniel 2, verses 1 through 24. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word for me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time, because you see that the word for me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand, for no great and powerful man, for no great and powerful king has asked me such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out and the wise men were about to be killed and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night, then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what it is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. For you have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. Therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Word of the Lord. Please uh, sit down and... Um... Go back to that uh, reading. It's a big old long reading. Um, so it, it, it took two of them. So um, good job, uh, Carson and Novella. Well done reading. Good job, everybody listening. 
Um, here's what I want to show you today, and, and this is going to sound odd. What I want to show you today is this, that God is a revealer of mysteries. Uh, now, I take that, that, that's a quote from King Nebuchadnezzar uh, at the end of the reading. It's verse uh, 47. His conclusion at the end of this experience is that God is a revealer of mysteries. So I'm, I'm, I'm um, stealing that from Nebuchadnezzar. But I know that when I say God is a revealer of mysteries, it's a pretty weird thing to say. Uh, to be honest, it kind of, it kind of sounds to me like, like, a, like, a, like a chapter from Harry Potter. Like chapter 549, Revealer of Mysteries, or, or something like that. You can tell what's playing in my home right now. Um, but I, I can imagine that somebody uh, more seriously coming back and saying, hang on, God, a revealer of mysteries? I can imagine somebody saying, boy, I wish that were true. But I can imagine somebody saying, I've asked God a lot of questions in my life, and I've only heard deafening silence. Or I could hear somebody else say, uh, God, a revealer of mysteries? What are you talking about? The whole idea of God, G-O-D, that is the greatest mystery I can think of. I don't even know if God exists. I don't know what to think of God. God himself is a mystery. How could he possibly reveal other ones? I don't know if any of that comes up for you, but if it does, it um, makes a lot of sense. It's a weird thing to say that God is a revealer of mysteries. Let me use different words. In this reading, God discloses things that are otherwise hidden. God says things in this reading. God divulges privileged information. And the privileged information that God divulges, discloses in this reading, describes some of how it is that God in the Bible intervenes in this world. And what I want to do is flesh that out. And I want to show you three ways, three things God discloses, which are also three ways God intervenes in this world. Here's the first one. God, in this reading, discloses the nearness of his word, the hidden nearness of his word. What are you talking about? Well, go to the reading here. Go to the story. Um, it's a long reading. Uh, let me just kind of remind you of what it's about. You've got King Nebuchadnezzar, which was, he was one of the greatest kings of Babylon. If you go to the Metropolitan Museum of Art, if you go into the ancient history section, you'll see artifacts from Nebuchadnezzar's reign, even decrees, I, if I remember correctly, with his name on it and things like that. Nebuchadnezzar was a great king. And Nebuchadnezzar had a bad dream one day. And it wasn't just a normal bad dream. It was a dream that frightened him. It was a dream that was deeply threatening. And so what Nebuchadnezzar does is he calls all of his civil servants. That's what the Chaldeans and the magicians and the, all those guys are. They're his civil servants. And he brings them in and he said, civil servants, I've had a bad dream and I need you to tell me what it means. And immediately, uh, the civil servants, they click their heels and they say, absolutely, yes, sir, I'm so glad you called us. This is what we're good at. Tell us the dream and we'll let you know what it means. But then comes the curveball because Nebuchadnezzar says, not a chance. 
And he gets really suspicious. And he says, you know what? I don't really trust you guys. I don't really trust you guys. If you are all you say you are, you should be able to divine the dream that I had without me telling you. Prove your credibility by telling me the dream and then tell me the interpretation. And if you don't, I'll kill you. To remind you of my love. Da, 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 da. And look what they say in verse 11. The thing that the king asks is difficult. And no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Now, mark that last line. The gods dwelling, says the civil servants, is not with flesh. This is really important. Slow down with me. Now, the, like I said, the Babylonian civil servants, they're the magicians, the sorcerers, the scholars, the astrologers, and all of them believe in divine beings. Uh, atheism, as we know it today, was just not a viable option at the time. However, the Babylonians are functional atheists. What, do I, what does that mean? Here's what I mean. Theoretically, they believed in the gods, but they did not believe the gods intervened in their world. They didn't believe that the gods cared about them. They didn't believe the gods engaged with them. They didn't believe the gods practically entered into this world or really made much of a difference. Um, the gods for the Babylonians were completely out of the picture, at least at a practical level. The gods don't make their dwelling with flesh. So the Babylonians couldn't rely on the gods, and therefore they relied upon themselves, which makes a lot of sense. They relied upon their abilities and their resources and their learning and their power, maybe especially their power. The Babylonians relied on Babylonian resources. And you can see that even in the way they told their stories. Um, I'm not an ancient Babylon expert, but I'm told by scholars I read this week that um, we have some of the ancient uh, court stories from the court of Babylon. And apparently these stories tend to follow a particular pattern. And the pattern is uh, very often you've got a king or the kingdom faces a problem, a big problem, a big problem that seems to be above anybody's pay grade. Uh, and and, the, and it, they try to find a solution, and nobody can find a solution until, until somebody that's super smart and super competent and super amazing, a court official, steps forward with a brilliant plan, rescues the whole kingdom and solves the problem. And what's important there is that apparently their stories reinforce the fact that the gods are for all practical purposes, out of the picture, and therefore, they've got to be capable of solving the problem themselves, and it seems that they are. Well, keep that in your mind and go back to the story, because Nebuchadnezzar is just irate with his staff. It sounds like there's a background story here that we don't know about. And in Nebuchadnezzar's insecurity and in his arrogance and in his brutality, he decides to kill them. And right at that moment, Daniel steps in. 
And when Daniel steps in, if you were reading this and you were used to Babylonian court stories, you go, oh, yes, here we go. Here's Daniel. He's going to be the really, really clever one that makes it all okay. But not so fast. Because Daniel changes the script. Daniel doesn't think like a Babylonian. Uh, Daniel doesn't rely upon himself, his resources, his power, his skill, his learning. Rather, Daniel calls a prayer meeting. And he gathers his friends and he says, call upon the mercies of God. Look at verse 18. And then, in response to their prayer, the God of Israel speaks. Verse 19. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Now, this is where the intervention starts. The remarkable thing about Daniel's God, and the thing that makes Daniel's God so different from the Babylonian view of the gods, is that Daniel's God discloses otherwise hidden things. Look at verse 22. Daniel says, God reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. Now, friends, that idea of a God who reveals is a revolution for the Babylonian mindset. It's cataclysmic because it means that there is a God who is engaged in this world. There is a God who intervenes, which another way of saying that is that it means that humanity is not left by itself. But the question is, how does God intervene? What does it look like? Maybe better, what does it sound like? God intervenes in many ways in the Bible. But the point here is that the God of Israel engages our world crucially through his word, through speaking. God intervenes in our world by communicating messages to us that we couldn't have figured out ourselves. And again, as soon as I say that, I, I can hear somebody coming back at me and saying, hang on, Jim. Um, wait a second. I've asked God lots of questions, and all I have heard in response is a deafening kind of silence. To which I respond, no, I, I hear you. This is not saying that God answers all of our questions. It is saying that God discloses the things that we most need to hear. And sometimes the things we most need to hear are answers to questions we never thought to ask. And actually, that's part of the value. That's part of the value of God's speech or what Christians call God's word. Now, let me do a little bit of an aside here. Uh, Christians believe the Bible... Uh, is, is central to how God speaks. God speaks uniquely through the Bible. It's one of the reasons we read so much of it today. And as Christians, when we listen to the Bible, it's on the one hand, deeply compelling. It is also, on the other hand, deeply unnerving. It's deeply compelling because as we read the scriptures, we find that God is not far off um, that God is near and that God speaks into the world and God speaks into our lives. We find that the Bible itself is not just a book that sits there, that the Bible itself is evidence of God's intervention and is a means of God's intervention in our lives. 
And that is a very compelling idea. But it is also a very unnerving idea because it's an intervention. If there is a God who speaks, if there is a God who breaks through that barrier that we imagine is around us, it's as if we imagine there's a barrier between us and God which sort of allows a certain degree of autonomy for me. But if God speaks and breaks through that barrier, then it means that I am no longer autonomous. It means that I am no longer the center. It means that there is going to be a decentering of me in my own life, and there's going to be a recentering of God in the center of my life as God speaks. And that is an unnerving experience because there's no greater revolution or intervention that a human person could experience. Just let that float around there for a minute. Let's go back to the story. The first intervention is that God discloses the hidden nearness of his word. The second intervention is that God discloses the hidden weakness of human power. Go to the second reading. And think about uh, Nebuchadnezzar's dream and his vision. What you have is a big image. You have a big statue. Remember? And uh, the head is gold, the chest is silver. How did it go? Then I think bronze, and then iron, and then clay. Feet of clay. Have you ever heard of, oh, that leader's got a feet of clay. That's where it comes from. Now, if you're an ancient Jewish person, you look at that big statue, and it's going to be an unmistakable for you. It's going to be an unmistakable idol. What's an idol? An idol is something that's not God that we treat like God. And the thing about idols is that idols always demand our deepest allegiance. And that's what this idol is doing here. Daniel tells us that it represents a succession of superpowers, of empires, uh, of kingdoms. And all of them are really powerful. Some more, some less, but all of them significantly powerful. Now, remember that in a Babylonian mindset, uh, human competence and power is right at the center of everything. And their empires and their kingdoms is, in a way, the outward expression of their self-reliance lifted to a geopolitical level. They worshipped their empire. Their empire demanded their deepest allegiance. However, this vision disrupts all of that. Or maybe better, God's word comes in this story and discloses something that would be otherwise hidden. And the thing that God discloses is something that Babylon was not expecting to hear. What happens is this statue, this idol, this uh, outward expression, symbolic expression of their empire and all of their power gets absolutely annihilated by a single stone. Now, remember what I said before. God's word, when God's message comes to us, it almost always decenters me and centers God in my place. And that's precisely what's happening in this moment. But it happens at an imperial scale. 
So Babylon is, a, is an empire that is profoundly centered upon itself. Babylonians thought Babylon was the center of everything. And yet, it gets smashed by a stone. Decentered. Whenever a society becomes a superpower, whenever a society centers itself, it almost always ends up being insecure and arrogant and often brutal. We become arrogant because of success. A society becomes a superpower. We're successful, man. <laughs> you know, we feel powerful. We win. We're winners. We win wars. We're rich. Our economy is thriving. Look at how we do things. It's better than anybody else. And in those moments, it feels like we will last forever. We're different from the empires and the kingdoms and the superpowers that have come before. We're arrogant because of our success. But we are also always insecure. Because when you rely upon your own power, every little crack in that power becomes a threat to the thing you value most, which is your own power and your success. And when you think you're the center of the world, a society like that is going to see every single threat as it'll feel like the end of the world. And so we're always afraid. We're arrogant, but we're afraid. And very often those two things combine to make us brutal. And friends, I wonder if any of that sounds familiar. Because any nation or any human institution that experiences great success will be tempted to worship the accumulated power. We will rarely do it explicitly, but you will see that the signs of that kind of idolatrous worship in the arrogance and the insecurity and the brutality that emerges. So watch out, Emmanuel, and do not give your allegiance to such things, not your deepest. Because watch what happens. Go back to the story. The stone strikes the idol and smashes it which is a really vivid way of decentering empire and its idolatrous power and centering God instead. And that's what the word of God does to idolatrous power, Emmanuel. God's word speaks to every human regime. God's word speaks to every government and every nation, to businesses and industries, to political tribes and to social movements, to religious institutions, and says, the power that you have is a gift from God. Better steward it well. Because you must not imagine that you will act with impunity. The word of God says God himself will call you to account the word of God promises that God will judge the injustice, the brutality, the arrogance, and the evil of every human institution. Human power will not stand in the end. And God will ensure that all human power will either bend the knee or be obliterated. And can you see how God's word decenters us and centers him instead? 
And can you see why that's good news for someone who has lived under the bitter weight of human oppression? And can you see why all of this challenges the deepest allegiance of our heart? God intervenes. He intervenes by disclosing, disclosing the hidden nearness of his word, and through his word, disclosing the hidden weakness of idolatrous power. But then thirdly, the word of God discloses the hidden strength of his own kingdom. Look back at that stone. It's a good stone. Because it smashes the idol. But it does not just destroy, it builds. It becomes a mountain that lasts forever. Look at verse 44. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all the kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. And that describes God's final intervention. And, and do you notice that it's a stone that's not cut by a human hand? That's on purpose. The stone grows into a mountain that lasts forever, and that's the mountain of God's kingdom. And it's the opposite of the Babylonian kingdom. Babylon was based on human resources and human power and human competency, and everything rests on us. And the result is that it is insecure and arrogant and brutal. But God's kingdom is a different kind of kingdom. Because God's kingdom isn't based upon human resources, and therefore it's not vulnerable to human vulnerabilities. God's kingdom rests upon God himself. He's the center of it. It's a happy thing when the human heart gets decentered and God is centered in its place. God, God's kingdom rests upon his own intervention. And when do you see the intervention of God most clearly? Well, you see it in the face of Jesus Christ. I don't have time to go into it, but the Gospel of John, I mean, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 20, Jesus refers, alludes to this stone, and he identifies it with himself. And he indicates that Jesus, he indicates that he will be the final judge that smashes the evil of this world and all who ally themselves to it. But at the same time, Jesus reveals himself who is a king that extends mercy and grace even towards his enemies. The wonderful thing about Jesus is that he holds both judgment against evil and mercy towards his enemies in a remarkable way he holds them together. And you can see that anticipated in this reading. Look back at it. Do you know why? Let me ask you a question. Why does God give this vision to Nebuchadnezzar? Why? Nebuchadnezzar is not on God's team. Nebuchadnezzar is on Nebuchadnezzar's team, and he's the epitome of insecurity and arrogance and brutality, and you'll see it in the, day, in the weeks to come. And yet, despite all that, God gives him this vision. Why? God warns him. Why? Because God's a different kind of king. And God's not like Nebuchadnezzar. 
And God is just, and don't ever imagine that he's not. God is just, and we've got to take that seriously. God is just, and he's also full of mercy. And he reaches out even to his enemies so that they might be saved. And that's what Jesus did. When he hung upon the cross, he was holding together both judgment and mercy in one moment. And on the cross, Jesus offered him free, himself freely to die the death his enemies deserved so that his enemies could receive his amnesty. So when you look at Jesus, you see the stone that smashes the evil and injustice of this world. But before he smashes the evil and injustice of this world, he presents himself as the sacrifice to redeem his enemies. I said at the beginning that some of us think about God and we're not even, even sure what God might be like, that God himself is the greatest mystery of all. And if that's you, and you want to know what God is like, look at the face of Jesus Christ. God, Jesus Christ is God disclosing himself to you. Jesus is God divulging, just coming clean, unveiling who he is. And when you look at Jesus, you'll find a better king than any you will find in this world. A better king than any regime that demands your allegiance and a better king than even your own life. When you look at him, you will see his perfect commitment to justice and you will see his perfect commitment to mercy. And the more that becomes clear as he divulges who he is, as he reveals himself as the grand mystery, then you will find your heart wanting to surrender to him the deepest allegiance of your soul. And that's Emmanuel where Jesus wants to take us. And that's the point of this book of Daniel, to ask us to surrender the deepest allegiance of our heart yet again and more fully. And you ask me, Jim, what does it look like when we surrender the deepest allegiance of our hearts, to which I respond, well, look at the prophet Daniel. You see him? Can you see his humility? And can you see his courage? And can you see his mercy? Just think about Daniel for a second. You know, Nebuchadnezzar is insecure and arrogant and brutal because he bases his life on the precarious foundation of human power. But Daniel's the opposite. Daniel rests on God. He's been decentered. His center is on God, and his allegiance is not to any human regime, but to that kingdom which will have no end. And therefore, he's free to be humble. You can see his humility in his prayer. When faced with the crisis, Daniel doesn't merely strategize. He calls a prayer meeting. Prayer is what it looks like when we're decentered ourselves and are resting on God. And you can see it, you can see his humility in the way he speaks. All through this story, Daniel points away from himself. He could have taken the credit, he could have been the star of the story, but he's not the star of the story, and he knows better. And he points away to, from himself to the Lord. Daniel is humble, and he's also courageous, and he's courageous in mercy. Because through his ministry, the whole civil service is saved. And these guys aren't Daniel's friends. This civil service represents the regime that is enslaving Daniel's whole people in exile. They are not his allies, and yet Daniel is not afraid to show mercy. He's courageous in his willingness to serve even his enemies. And Emmanuel, that humility... And that courage and that mercy, those are the telltale signs of a heart who surrendered allegiance to Jesus. If insecurity and arrogance and brutality are the signs of giving your allegiance 
to the kingdoms of this world, then humility and courage and mercy are signs of giving your allegiance to Jesus. And that's where the Lord wants to take us. The Lord wants to make us his ambassadors, ambassadors in this world of a better kingdom. And can you think of a greater thing, a more important thing to live for than that? Can you think of a kingdom that is more urgently needed in this world than this one? And don't you want to live as ambassadors? What a way to not waste your life. What a way to live for Jesus Christ. And that's what he's calling you now too. And that's what he's calling me to. And it's a good path. And it's based upon the disclosure of God. He discloses his hidden word. Listen until you find yourself decentered and Christ-centered in its place. Listen to the disclosure of the weakness of human power. And do not be duped into giving your allegiance to the things of this world. And listen to the disclosure of the hidden strength of the kingdom of God. And live for that. Amen? Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com slash give.